This is called <laughs> Smørbrød. It's a very traditional Danish dish, considering of an inconspicuous thin slice of dark rye bread on the stack of other stuff, which is uh, actually really the taste of the dish. Um, and um, this is a story about the rye, this rye bread, and about harvest, and about how we can actually see animism in some of the most common everyday-like aspects of our life when we just scratch the fur fur surface a bit of completely common thing like bread we sometimes find these yeah aspects of animist traditional knowledge um, my name is uh, Rune Jan Erasmus I'm a historian of religion I'm working on uh, Nordic animist knowledge and if you appreciate my attempts to uh, make majority animist knowledge available with cutting edge uh, cutting edge anthropology then consider patreon supporting me um, right so this rye bread, which is a common uh, staple in southern Scandinavia and I, I think parts of Germany, is uh, still today a, an important staple uh, of Danish food. I think I've eaten it almost every single day of my childhood and upbringing. And it's just this in immensely important staple food in people's lives. Uh, it's very nutritional. I think it's a little bit of an acquired taste, sort of bitterish and, and uh, dense. Um, but uh, in, in, in animist worldviews, it's like this, the, the organism that feeds people takes an incredibly important role. You know, among the Sami you have the reindeer, among the Maya you have the maize, among the Yoruba you have the, the yam, among the Inuit you have seals, among the Dakota you have the American bison and so on. Th these are life-giving organisms and they are in a sense divine because they, well, they give us life. <laughs> um, and among the people in northern Germany, southern uh, Scandinavia, the rye has had this role as a sustainer of life for ever. Very, very old um, piece of culture. Um, this is a living being, the rye plant basically, that gives us life. So uh, there used to be these extensive and complex technologies surrounding the cultivation and the harvesting of this plant, the rye. Um, also around other crops, by the way, but in, in southern Scandinavia, particularly the rye. Uh, the sowing was uh, ritualized as um, uh, sacred bread would uh, be eaten while sowing or perhaps given to the earth. And uh, the growth would be supported by prayers to thunder, for, for thunder to come and ripen the crops. Or, um, and the, the harvest uh, was a long intensely ritualized process filled with taboos and games and all kinds of folklore. Sometimes uh, people would leave a small corner of the field for the wild hunt or for uh, an elf king or perhaps for Odin or something like that. Um, uh, there was a ritual for bringing in the first chief, sometimes for bringing in the last, last chief. And uh, a bit like the Maya who see the maize as a deity, the Northern Europeans used to build these corn dollies, I believe they're called in English, kind of a, a, a corn deity out of, out of these sheaves. Uh, and uh, this is a way of producing the crop deity as, a, as an object for cult. He or she could then be adorned or worshipped in many ways. Um, a case I particularly like is that a masculine corn deity was brought to the lady of the house who would then have a symbolic intercourse with this masculine corn dolly and that it would then be transformed into a bread uh, that she would ritually give birth to 
and it would be dispersed among the harvest workers. So you see this kind of a cult drama where the woman of the house almost enacts a kind of Mother Earth role. Um, and this sexual aspect of, of relating to the Earth is, I think, quite characteristic of Nordic uh, animism. You find it even in, in Christian formula, like in the English ritual uh, called the Akerboat, where uh, Mother Earth is addressed monumentally. Um, it says, Hail to you, field the people's mother, be thou growing in the embrace of God, food filled for the people to enjoy. Notice that God, I guess the Christian God, is actually having sex with the fields in this formula. It's a ritualization of God having sex with the earth. Um, and um, yeah, but generally I think the, the this cult of the crop is characterized by transformation. The purpose is to birth and proper ripening of the deity and humans participate in these transformations throughout the year. These life-giving transformations from seed to corn, from corn to flour, uh, to bread and beer, these stages in this almost animist alchemy uh, goes on throughout the year. And these sheaves, for instance, could be saved for the Yule period and transformed into a Yule goat costume perhaps, or they could be given to the wild hunt, or they could be used for, to make these specific sacred Yule breads. And these breads would then have to be on the Yule altar, perhaps with sowing seeds from the coming season strewn around them, or Christmas candles would have to shine on them, uh, so they would almost absorb the light of Yule, which is of course linked to the returning of light. Um, and then the bread would be brought on and perhaps given to the earth while sowing, as I mentioned before. Beer, it could also be used for beer. Specific Yule beer could be made out of uh, a last sheaf to transform it into the, kind of transforming the bounty of the land into the spirit of celebration that would enliven uh, the world in the darkest time of year. When, when of course, when the land is, is dead and, and must be brought back to life somehow. So these kind of cyclical transformations of, of life essences are really central, I think, to Nordic animism. And uh, this, by the way, is the kind of stuff that I'm communicating quite a lot about in the runic animist calendar, which you can order from my page, which is somewhere here. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a note how incredibly intense the connection to the land was in traditional agricultural society. We're talking about human physical processes like uh, making love to the earth as a divine being and the whole year basically being involved in participating in these natural processes and, and transformations. Um, however, in the 19th century something happened, industrialization, and that meant that a lot of this very intense relation make, making was severed or somehow lost. In the 19th century, a lot of peasants moved into the big cities and became workers. And this change was really hard on people. Now the, the Maya in Guatemala, they have a saying that you only get really full from eating the maize from your own village. So even today where some of the Maya live in big cities and work as software engineers and whatnot, they will sometimes go back and get some maize from the, the village that they, they come from. They feel a bit ruptured from the earth and they need uh, to hold on to that uh, that connection a little bit. Um, and there, there are also cases, by the way, where uh, this rupture from traditional livelihood has really uh, 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 tragic consequences for uh, indigenous peoples. They experience quite intense hardship. Cultural and social problems emerge when people are severed from from the land and from those organisms that used to give them life, be that 
maize, seals, American buffalo, or whatever. Uh, and exactly something of that sort you actually see, or something comparable with the industrialization in, in Northern Europe. Because when people move into big cities, there's a lot of social problems of exactly that kind that, that emerged. Uh, when, when Northern European peasants uh, moved to big cities and became workers, there was rampant alcoholism, social problems, domestic violence, gambling, extremism. And, I mean, of course, we didn't experience racism. And I think the land theft uh, would probably have been capitalist. And to some extent, at least, I think it was countered uh, because at least here we were blessed with some very competent uh, cooperative movements who uh, uh, very pragmatically kept the means of production in the hands of the people, as I think Marx would have said it and thereby avoided at least the most rampant capitalist exploitation, uh, at least of the rural population. But anyway, the, the cities in, in, in the, the late uh, 19th century were characterized by abject poverty. And one very uh, widespread strategy was, curiously, it was a huge movement for allotment gardening. Tiny gardens with little houses emerged in a large belt around cities such as Copenhagen. It's basically following the same logic as the Maya idea that you can, you only get truly full by, by f food that comes from your own earth. So with this allotment gardens, uh, people were able to have a bit of connection to the earth, grow a bit of plants and get some nutrients and fresh greens and so on. And I don't know so much about this phenomenon internationally, but in Scandinavia at least it was a really big thing. Uh, it also expresses some sort of longing back towards a time where our life was something that we received as a divine gift in, you know, interrelation, interaction with the earth. Uh, and there is a romanticism in this perspective, a bit of a nostalgic longing for a lost time or something like that. And this exactly is a feeling that scholars generally have a strong resilience against. Um, Scholars uh, sometimes seem to suspect that there's something inherently fascist about Romanticism, which is a weirdly superficial and I think totally incorrect uh, thing. I think the reason uh, is that Romanticism does hold a cr critique of modernity, and scholarship often has a strong uh, modernist bias, but Romanticism itself is not fascist just because specific fascists were Romanticists, you know, like, like Julius Evola and Hitler. Uh, but uh, romanticists uh, and romanticist thinking can actually be really progressive and emancipatory. If you see the American culturalist school of anthropology of an example, a uh, really good example of this. And conversely, modernism can indeed also be very fascist. Uh, I think a number of the decidedly modernist communist leaders of the 20th century, like Stalin, Mao and Pol Pot, uh, were some of the biggest mass murderers of, of our age, basically, and they were certainly modernist. Um, um, so, uh, yeah, I think uh, Romanticism is a reaction to modernity, and particularly to the separation that modernity implements, for instance, between humanity and other organ uh, organisms that sustain our lives. Uh, and uh, Romanticism expresses a longing for this lost relation. and. In, in that sense, romanticism is not a solution. It's just a longing. And it might even, like reveling in that longing, might even push things away a little bit. Animism is a, is a solution. Uh, and uh, I think we have to be wary about nostalgia when we produce animism exactly because of this sort of almost cult of the distant. Uh, 
purpose and other things should be different. They should be close. But, but, but yeah, romanticism is a kind of an emotional recognition that something has gone somehow away. So uh, yeah, so I'll play a little song for you in this video by the 19th century, I think it would be very fair to call him a social justice warrior, <laughs> named Jebe uh, Oker, who portrayed this exact animist cycle of the Rye in his uh, work from 1906 called The Songs of the Rye. And here is... Uh, 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 songwriter called Thomas or singer uh, called Thomas Kellogg performing uh, the song in which uh, Oker nostalgically remembers from his childhood the most sacred moment during harvest time uh, which is that where the rye was brought in. Yeah, thanks for listening and see you around. Den kære ro kom ind Hvordan den skærne tunge top Ved moders svage kræfter Blev lagt i luen Først bredte mor et glæde Så ømt som nogen højtidstue der måtte ingen træde med sko i høstens ro. Så fejede hun med limens rest hvert snavset strå til side, som for en hedersgæst. Den kære ro var gæsten, der gjorde verden. Barnsen spændt Se far han ligger Viste Og ser så en advent En skælven i Et ydmygt sind En bøn til Altet skaber Før havlen Bringet sind Og ne for ne Forsvinder og bliver under fjælken sat Se far for røde kinder Og spindelvæv om hat Men mor er lige hvid og bleg Hvor meget tunen stræber Med ruens tunge Det går mod aftentid Snart skinner månen fuld og rund På gavl og vægge hvide Og ned i vognens bund Mor stanser træt og titter ind Far kommer hen til luen Klapper hendes kind Og barnet som har løbet sig træt i dagens mundtålej Det er nu stille krøbet Inden under julet se 
Da høres dette skarpe knald fra vognens fjæl mod sandet af ørensvistens fald. Og mellem juletiger går stjerneblæk og måneskin og milde vinde viger, mens barnet slumrer ind. Så slutter far i Jesu navn, og hjemmet går til vin. 